The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Growing up, my parents told me that what they most wanted for me was to be happy. But they never actually defined the term. Happy. How was I supposed to know what it meant? So I did all the things that successful people around me did. I worked hard at school. I was a striver. I got a college degree, a master's degree. I landed a good job, and eventually I married an awesome woman. But did I feel happy? Are you happy? Arthur Brooks thinks that even asking that question is the wrong way to think about happiness. He's just worked with Oprah Winfrey on a new book called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And this idea, it was one of the first questions they thought through together. She's like, so happiness is not the goal. I'm like, no, you can't get happiness. You can't get it because you have to have negative experiences and negative emotions. Or, or you'll die and you'll never actually find happiness. So you can't get to happiness. It's a real paradox. It's a direction, not a destination. So she said, so the goal is actually happierness. I said, that's it. That's a word that needs to exist. I mean, just think about it for a second. Arthur Brooks, a social scientist who teaches about happiness and leadership at Harvard, and Oprah Winfrey, who is Oprah Winfrey, hold up on a retreat working out their shared thoughts on happierness. Well, I'd want to be there for that. Today, Arthur joins us to offer up a three-part definition for what we mean when we talk about being happy. He'll supply research about how we humans are wired that explains why we sometimes chase the wrong goals. And he'll map out a formula for how we can get this right, how we can be happier and help those around us to do the same. Here's Arthur. We have this real tendency in our society and probably in 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 humanity, for that matter, to think of happiness as a feeling, because happiness is so wrapped up with feelings, so wrapped up with emotions, that we tend to think of it as an emotion per se, and it isn't. Happy feelings, positive feelings, are evidence of happiness, like the smell of the turkey is evidence of Thanksgiving dinner. It's not the same thing as Thanksgiving dinner, and we have to get past this idea that we got to chase feelings and hope for feelings and get better feelings, and no, 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 no. Feelings are just signals. They're signaling one part of your brain to another part of your brain that something is going on in your world, and so and you need to survive and live another day. Negative emotions are, are, are alarm bells for you. They're threats. They're, you know, get away or do something differently. Positive emotions or you should go towards something. So, you know, one is back off, one is go forward. But that's all they are. And if we start to see them as, you know, I just want to get as many positive emotions as possible and avoid as many negative emotions as possible, that's not a strategy. That's not a way to live our lives. And yet that's what everybody's telling us to do. And, and people don't understand that that's not how you get happier. Yeah. The key thing to understand is how the science of emotion works. And that requires that you define happiness that gives you a real strategy. 
So happiness not being feelings is actually a combination of three real life things. Enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. You need to enjoy your life, you need to get satisfaction in your achievements and your accomplishments in your work, and you need to find meaning in the things that you do. And each one of those things is a, <laughs> it's, each one of those things is tricky. And a lot of people get it wrong. Part of it is because they don't even understand what those things are, let alone just like chasing their tails with, you know, I got to get feelings and these feelings, et cetera, et cetera. I so, just want to pause here to say that your, your day job these days is, is teaching this material to young people at Harvard, people yeah. who have ostensibly, at least on paper, ran after those three things and perhaps then got into that moment where they're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm at Harvard. I have a good life. I have all the things. Why don't I feel different? Right. Well, part of the problem is that they're, they're actually not trying to get enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. They're trying to get, like so many people in society who are chasing worldly success, they're trying to get money, power, pleasure, and fame. Well, our society has told us outwardly through media consumption, through the narratives of our culture, that those things are – they lead to the each secret. other. The <laughs> secret. The secret of happiness. Right. And they're not. Yeah. It's actually not our culture that does that to us. Our culture amplifies our natural tendencies. The real problem is that Mother Nature is lying to us. Mother Nature has only two imperatives for the human race. Survive and pass on your genes. That's all Mother Nature cares about. We think, since we want to be happy, that Mother Nature wants us to be happy. No, 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 no. Mother Nature knows if you do those things, you're going to do what she wants, which is you're more likely to survive for another day, you're more likely to pass on your genes. She does not care that you'll also be miserable. So you have to take uh, conclusive and purposive conscious action to not do those things. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the book, just to, to understand your own emotions, to understand your own drives and your own cravings, and to do something else instead. That's living a better life based on enjoyment, not pleasure, satisfaction, not just running and running and running fruitlessly, and meaning, real meaning in life, which actually requires a whole lot of sacrifice and disappointment and even pain from time to time. So, so much of the book that you both have written focuses on how to cultivate satisfaction, enjoyment, right. and meaning. And we're going to explore that. But before we get there, I, I know this because you've been on the show before, but our listeners may not, Arthur. You're not writing this book because you were born a happy person, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People often say, you know, you're the happiness professor of the Harvard Business School. You must be the happiest dude on the planet. But, you know, if I go to Steph Curry and say, when you were a little kid, were you good at basketball? He'd be like, yeah, totally. Right? Um, but then basketball and happiness are not very similar. I know almost everybody who teaches happiness at the scientific level at universities, and they're all looking for it, which is why they specialize in it. You don't get a leg up by being naturally good at it. If you're naturally happy, like my wife, you don't even think about studying happiness. I mean, that'd be like me studying oxygen. I got no lack of it, no problem. It might be interesting and all that, but if I were missing oxygen in my life, I'd be super interested in it, trust me. And that's more what happiness is like. So yeah, I come in on the gloomy side. I'm actually, I have lots of positive emotions, but I also have very intense negative emotions, which is one of the profiles that we look at for people in this book. This is the mad scientist profile, high positive emotion, high negative emotion. A quarter of the population has this. And the result is in my head, I'm kind of doing sums and I'm like, eh, I don't feel good a lot of the time. And that's why I got into the happiness business to like, I have a PhD for something. I could study widgets for the rest of my career and, you know, write esoteric articles that are read by 14 people or what the heck. 
why don't I actually study the thing that I most want and everybody else wants too? And, you know, it only took till I was 59 to figure that one out. Well, and so are you happier? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what happened was in 2008, in my first go through academia, I was teaching at Syracuse University and I realized that I was missing in my research agenda what I most wanted to study and what people were most asking me about, which was happiness. So I wrote a book in 2008 about happiness, but I, I studied it in exactly the wrong way. I looked at it like astronomy. You know, I, I looked at who's happy and who's not, and all like the stars far away and you can't affect. And then I, I quit my job and I went away, I became an executive. I, I ran a big nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. When you and I first met, I was the president of a think tank in D.C. You were just stepping down from it and the entire was. world was looking up like, what? Who leaves those chief executive jobs? And uh, I wanted to be happier truth be told. But I, was, I knew that I had this opportunity to go back to that subject and actually see if I could use it as opposed to observing the science of happiness. So I came to Harvard after I, I stepped down as the think tank president and I dedicated myself to teaching and writing about that for ordinary people. So I took a professorship of practice. Now what that means at most universities is that I, you know, I, I've been a CEO and so I bring practice into the classroom. But more importantly, I'm, a, I'm an academic, so I'm taking academic ideas to the public, meaning if you read my stuff and you don't understand it, shame on me. I'm not writing about it in the right way. And furthermore, I'm your tour guide. I'm your trail boss through this really esoteric material, meaning I'm not going to tell you about science that has not been replicated, that might be fake, that has some outlandish conclusion that would make your grandma say, that's nonsense. No, 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 no. I'm going to get the best stuff that's replicated, rock solid. I'm going to tell you what it means and how to use it. That's what I started doing. And, and furthermore, I promised to myself and to my wife that I wasn't going to give anybody any advice I didn't take myself. So I started writing The Atlantic once a week on the science of happiness. And I'm usually eight weeks ahead in my column. And the reason for that is not because I'm such an overachiever, but because I'm living a guinea pig life on all the things that I'm recommending and keeping the stuff that really works and, and keeping that for the readers. But along the way, I started getting happier. Mm. Is happiness a bit like playing the French horn in that you learn the skills, but then you also need to upkeep the embouchure and continue the practice? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a set of habits. Yeah. It's a lifestyle is the way that this works. It's not a hack. There's no hacks, only habits. Just like when you play the French horn, like you and me, no hacks, only habits. Yeah. You don't play your scales. You don't actually practice. You're going to lose it is the way that – and you'll forget is the other thing. So a lot of people will – They'll read something and they'll say, oh, it's such a good idea. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to make a gratitude list. Make a gratitude list. Yeah. And then they do it and then they look at it and they kind of tape it to the bottom of their computer screen and then they don't see it and then they don't update it. They're like, that gratitude thing doesn't work. No, no, no. You didn't do the work. <laughs> That's the problem. And so in our book, we talk about all of these protocols. There, there are literally hundreds of things that you can actually do that we talk about in the in the context of what the science actually says and, and, and using Oprah's language, how you can be pursuing happierness in your everyday life. If you just heard hundreds of things to do, please don't get overwhelmed. When we come back from the break, we'll dig in. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. 
A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. I mentioned that Arthur and Oprah had devised a framework for how we can think about happiness. Well, I asked Arthur to walk us through it. Happiness like Thanksgiving dinner is based on three macronutrients. The three macronutrients, as we mentioned before, are enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. You need all three in balance and abundance. Those are the protein, carbohydrates, and fats of your happiness diet. Now, here's some easy things to keep in mind. Enjoyment and pleasure are not the same thing. If you pursue pleasure, you will not get more happiness. You'll hit the lever, change your brain chemistry, and get to addiction. And I don't care if it's a behavioral thing or it's a chemical thing. The pursuit of pleasure is a big mistake. How do you know? Enjoyment is something that gives you pleasure plus people plus memory. You're engaging the prefrontal cortex of your brain, but you don't have to know the neuroscience. Just remember, if you're doing something that you like again and again and again alone, there's a problem. That will not bring you happiness. That will take you to a place where you don't want to be. And by the way, you know, everybody's like, oh, you got to stop doing that thing. No, 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 no. You don't have to stop doing things. You got to add things, people and memory, add people and memory. Don't drink a 12 pack by yourself alone. Go out with your friends, have a couple of beers. And that turns it from pleasure to enjoyment. That's one satisfaction. The problem with satisfaction is that it's where you, you get joy at the end of working hard for something. Everybody on LinkedIn, understand satisfaction. You work hard, you're striving for something, and you have joy at the achievement of it. Now that's actually hard because you have to defer your gratification, but it's even harder because you can't keep that satisfaction unless you manage not just all the more, 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 more in your life, but also you manage the wants in your life. Your satisfaction is all the things that you have divided by the things that you want. That's how your satisfaction works. And you have to have a strategy, not just of increasing the numerator, but also decreasing the denominator. You need a wants management strategy. (laughs) I talk about the reverse bucket list, about chipping away all the detritus in your life. Mm -hmm. So that's satisfaction. And then last but not least, of course, is meaning, and that's the hardest of them all, because meaning requires that you say, I don't know what's gonna happen to me today, but bring it on. And that includes the bad things too. So I make my students, they make a, a failure list where they write the things down that they don't like, which is like every day when you're 28. Yeah, that's Somebody true. breaks your heart, you know, you, you, you fail an exam, you, you're not getting the interview for the job that you want. And underneath it, you have to come back after a month and write down what you learn. And, and six months later, you have to come back and write down something good that happened from it. And in doing that, you actually start turning the sources of dissatisfaction and, and unhappiness and ill-being in your life into meaning, which is the, the, the most important component of the happiness equation. So that's the first part. I can tell anybody listening to this podcast, if you have a meaning crisis in your life by asking two questions and, and seeing whether or not you have answers. Do you want to take the test? Do you want to take the meaning I test? I am. I'm a bit nervous too, but yes, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Uh, you need answers to the following questions that, that you believe are real answers, okay? Mm-hmm. Why are you alive? I'm alive to fulfill my purpose, which is love. Is to, to be loved, to bring love? To bring love, to be, to be love and to bring love. And for what would you be willing to die today? My children. 
Solid. <laughs> You'd be shocked at how many people don't have answers to this. Shocked. Look, I just committed to answering without thinking about it. If I had thought about it, I don't know what I would have said. It would have taken me a really long time, and 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 I don't know. I mean, it's not quite yeah. that simple. And and in fairness, Arthur, I I did read your book before we sat down here together. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, Arthur, I want to just take that one step further. You you and Oprah advocate strongly for for people who are working toward happiness to embrace a uh, a larger philosophy in their life, faith. Right. Right. You don't go so far as to prescribe what it should be, but you each talk openly about your own, and they're right. different. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a little controversial. Yeah, it is controversial today, but it really shouldn't be, because here's the basic social science behind faith and spirituality and basic life philosophy. Everybody needs something transcendent to their day-to-day -day experience. The reason is because if you're left to your devices, Mother Nature, she doesn't care about your happiness, once again, she'll say, hey, Jesse, you should spend all day thinking about your lunch and your money and your job and your commute and your office. And it's just, it's like watching the same episode of the same show uh, on Netflix over and over and over and over again until you want to go mad. You need peace and perspective by getting small. You need to get small so that you can see the majesties of the universe. You need to stand in awe. And the way that you do that is by zooming out. Now, how do you do that? My friend Ryan Holiday, he, he studies the Stoic masters. I mean, he looks at Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca and, and Cicero, and it's phenomenal because he, th th that's a, a philosophy that says you're little, revel in it, and it just gives you, it's just, you need it, you need the peace. Some people, they start a meditation practice, which is very good for that. Some people walk in nature for an hour without devices, just listening and smelling and seeing. Some people will you know, get seriously into an analysis, I don't know, of the work of Johann Sebastian Bach and work their way through all of the cantatas. Or some people like me, I practice the faith of my youth. You know, I'm a Catholic. I go to Mass every day. Right. But I'm not going to tell you that my religion is the right religion. That's a metaphysical question. That's, as right. they say, that's above my pay grade. Ask a pope. But I will tell you as a scientist, you need something bigger than you. And furthermore, it's really interesting. Actually, since Oprah and I wrote the book, new research has emerged talking about the unusual level of clarity that you can get only through metaphysical experiences, only through transcendental experiences. So for example, what people, people have two basic conditions, which is when you stimulate either the sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system, either you're alert or you're calm, calm or alert. You oscillate back and forth depending on the circumstances. However, if you actually, while experiencing transcendent experiences through meditation or prayer, you can experience both the parasympathetic and, and uh, sympathetic nervous system simultaneously. That's the only way we've found for you to be in a state of calm alert. Mm. Now that's like, that's like superhuman. You will understand yourself if you can learn to sit in a state of calm alert and you can't get it from some ordinary experience. You need something transcendent. Right, right. You know, so much of what you talk about in this book has to do with how to open yourself to connecting more deeply with other people, whether it be the importance of friendship or finding healing in our families of origin, anything else. So much of, it seems, becoming happier is figuring out how to become open to other people. Yeah. Am I reading that right? You are, and it really comes down to for what you're willing to die, Jesse, which is love. Happiness is love. It is. 
And, and so this is where it starts to become incredibly practical, but also as metaphysical as it could possibly be. You know, when you look at, at what people can pay attention to when they're not completely distracted by the emotional load that they're carrying around, you know, when Mother Nature is not, you know, bombarding them and they're not super reactive and in a limbic state of confusion and chaos, once they can calm all that down, they can focus on, on literally what science says are the four things that will actually bring you happiness on which you can build your life year after year after year to bring happy yearness. The one is faith that we talked about. The second is family. The third is real friendship, not deal friends, real friends. And last but not least is seeing your work as a, a beautiful way to serve other people. In other words, it's love, love of the divine, love of your family, love of your real friends, and love for everybody as expressed through the way that you earn your daily bread. That's what it comes down to. It's just four different aspects of expressing life and, and living a life in, of pure love. Real friends versus deal friends. This one landed with me. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with having people in your life that are helpful and useful to you. There's absolutely nothing. Aristotle talked about atelic relationships. Now, that's based on the idea of telos, telos, which is purpose, a goal. And what he really meant was that there's relationships that are not useful, Deal friends are useful friends. Real friends are useless friends. Just beautifully, wonderfully useless. I don't mean worthless. I have those too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people who are, you just love them is the way that that works out. And everybody has to have them. Now, when we're, we're all strivers on this platform, this is a great platform for strivers. I get it. But you can't be striving day in and day out and not sustain yourself on the real friend plane. You can't have it. You will, you'll, you'll wither. You'll become lonely. You'll become self-objectifying in all sorts of deleterious and dangerous ways. And that's one of the reasons I talk about that. And by the way, the apex of family and friends is spousal relationships. That's the apex of those two, because both family and friends all in one compact, difficult relationship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this brings us to the question of our work, which is really the subject of this podcast. Yeah. What is meaningful work? Meaningful work has two characteristics, really only to it. And those characteristics don't include what exactly you do for a living, whether you're managing of uh, 7-Eleven or you're teaching at a university or you're running a popular podcast for LinkedIn. It doesn't talk about how much money you make. It's not about how much power you have. It's not about how much fun you're having every day. And it's not about how much admiration and prestige your job brings you. The two things are you feel like you're earning your success, which is to say you're creating value with your life and you believe you're creating value in the lives of other people and it's acknowledged and rewarded. There's a lot to do with where you work. And the second thing is that you're serving other people, that you're a servant, and you actually know the people that are, are being helped. I mean, with this podcast, you get tons of feedback. You get tons of feedback. And so you, and people's like, Jesse, that was, that was so helpful to me. And so that's super easy for you or me. Because in our lives, we're, we're literally in this business of serving other people in a very tangible way. For other people, it's not so much. You know, if you're doing data entry, for example, if you're working in accounting, it can be harder. But we need that. We need to look for it. We need to expose ourselves to the conditions in which we can actually get that. What we deserve, and by the way, all you employers out there, what your employees need for them to have meaningful work and to get joy from their work, 
to express love in their work is that they believe they're earning their success, which means that when they're doing a great job, it must be acknowledged. And two, they need to know who they're helping. And so if you have clients that are getting a lot of benefit, bring the clients in to meet the staff. This was a game changer for me as a CEO. When people actually that were working in the mailroom or the cafeteria or something, I would bring in politicians who would say, you know, thank you. You're part of this thing that's that's making public policy that ideas that are really helping me a lot. And they'd be like, wow, it's the best day at work ever. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. So you are not an advocate of working from home. Well, for most people, we need more contact than we can get, especially if we live alone from working at home. Yeah. There's six or 7% of the population that are extreme introverts and they can figure out fostering, cultivating two or three real friendships that they can get. And on top of that, more people around them is not going to help them at all. But for most of the rest of us, we need more contact than we can get um, in in lockdown. Well, I will say this. Um, the the first time that you were on our show, you came in in person because right. it was pre-COVID and we only did things in person. Yeah. And this conversation that we're having right now is digital, but it is a better conversation for having spent that time together in person several years ago. It's true because I remember sitting across the table from you. Right. It really is true. And if we had never met, we wouldn't have actually had the rapport right from the get-go, right? So how, how do we get the best of the technology and the best of the people in one spot? That's a question we don't have the answer to at all. Yeah. We don't know that yet because we're fumbling our way. This is the way that technology always works. Technology always overpromises and underdelivers in the happiness department. And there's a reason for this too, by the way. My father was a mathematician, so we would always talk about these t types of problems around the dinner table, believe it or not. There's two kinds of problems out there. There's complicated problems and there's complex problems. Complicated problems are super hard to figure out and solve, but once you do, you can solve them over and over and over again. Making a toaster is a complicated problem. AI is a complicated problem. Then there are complex problems. Super easy to understand the solution, but impossible to solve even with all the computing power in the world. Falling in love is a complex problem. Who's gonna win the war? Complex problem. Complex problems have to be lived. Complicated problems can be solved with computers. The problem is, Tech is all complicated problems and humanity is all complex problems. So what's tech bringing us? Complicated solutions to complex problems and we wonder why we never get happier. <laughs> I feel lonely, I want warmth, I want love. And what I'm getting is goo-gahs and you know, things that light up and, and things that distract me, distract me from my loneliness. That's a big problem. Right, right. Um, and in the book, you address tech head on and you encourage people to figure out how to use the technology they have to get more FaceTime with people. Right, right. Use it so that it helps you in your, in your journey to the answers to complex problems. Don't think that a complicated solution is going to solve your complex problem per se. Yeah. That's it. And to the extent that it is substituting for in-person life, get rid of it. Absolutely. So you... You complete this journey, this book, um, by encouraging us to become teachers, yeah. which is what you have done. Why? So when people sit through a, a good amount of information on the science of happiness, um, they'll say, how did you remember it? You know, how do you remember all this stuff? At this point, you know, years and years and years and years of this, it's pretty hard to stump me on something about it because I, you know, I'm reading all this stuff all the time. How do you remember it? And the answer is I teach it. I got this from my dad, actually, who is a lifelong math professor. 
You know, he, I remember watching him give with no notes, a lecture on an advanced calculus. Just like, I was a kid. I'm like, how did you remember all that? I mean, how do you do that? He said, I taught it 40 times. I taught it 100 times. What happens is that a lot of things make sense to you, but they make sense to you in kind of a ghostly way in the brain. And the reason is because they're, they're making an impression on the limbic system of the brain. The limbic system of the brain is the origin of your emotions and drives and cravings. So when you think something, it kind of makes sense, it's sort of sitting in there, it actually is not something you're gonna remember or be able to use until you experience that information in the prefrontal cortex of your brain, the most evolved part, the bumper of tissue right behind your forehead. How do you do that? You do that by articulating the point. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that when you hear something like on the internet, that you understand for the first time, you have a flush of confidence. And that flush of confidence will make you think you understand it, but you actually don't. And when you try to explain it for the first time, you'll realize that you actually don't understand it very well. There's nothing, you don't have any detail. When you learn enough that you can teach it, then you own it forever. That was Arthur Brooks. Check out his new book, which is called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. He co-wrote it with Oprah, and it's really cool to see how their voices interplay in the book. I love talking to Arthur. You should check out our episode from a couple years ago where we talked about seasons to our professional lives and our careers. It's a really great add-on to this conversation. And I'll say that there are a handful of things that I'm going to take away from this conversation. First... Improving our lives is not about achieving happiness. Arthur and Oprah make that really clear right off the bat. Happiness is a pursuit, not a destination. Second, I really liked the way that Arthur introduced this idea of complicated versus complex problems. And third, if you want to really make sure that you've learned something, teach it. So if you really enjoyed today's conversation and you want to take it forward to apply it, well, then this is your opportunity. Find somebody you know today and spend 10 minutes sharing the big ideas. I guarantee it will force you to really think for yourself about what they are. Speaking of teaching, let's bring this conversation about happiness or happierness to office hours. As usual, we will go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and we'll help you out. You can also join the conversation in our Hello Monday group. Hope to see you there. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gidron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Brickmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer is always working toward happier. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. When Oprah calls you up, do you just pick up the phone and Oprah says hello, or are there a few more layers to that? Well, usually what you say when Oprah says, hi, this is Oprah Winfrey, usually you're like, oh, yeah, and this is Batman. <laughs> um, 
Right. It's it, no. I mean, she, it, it was it, there was a few more layers to it.